Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Spoilers are a path to the dark side. Spoilers lead to anger. Anger lead to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense many spoilers in this podcast from a galaxy far, far away in the series Star Wars Visions on Disney+, Plus. so beware of that. Also, what if? Hello. Welcome to episode four of X-Ray Vision, the Cricket Podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture, and more. Today, we are covering the first three Unbelievable episodes of the new anthology series, Star Wars Visions on Disney Plus. Disgraceful. <laughs> Plus news, recaps, and of course, the end game. But first, let's welcome back to the show one of our co-hosts, Cody Ziegler. Zig, how are you, sir? I am thriving. Uh, I, it was a great topic to talk about. I'm currently on hiatus from my writing show, so I have been speeding through the, all the Star Wars movies in chronological Hell order, yeah. so this is a perfect episode for me. I'm glad to come back for, for marrying my, my love of anime and my love of lightsabers in Star Wars. I can't wait to talk about uh, all of that. <laughs> uh, Zig, of course, is a podcaster, writer of both comics and TV, including Rick and Morty, the up-and-coming She-Hulk, uh, let's get into it. In today's preview, Sean, let's start with the shocking adaptation <laughs> of a Marvel property, Hit Monkey, dropping November 17th on Hulu. <laughs> Ten years ago when I read the, the Hit Monkey, <laughs> if you told me uh, that it one day would be a property that would be adapted, I'd be like, what? Mm -hmm. If you told me two days ago that it would be a property that somebody plucked <laughs> out of the Marvel canon to adapt, I'd be like, what? Uh, Hit Monkey uh, follows the adventures of a Japanese uh, snow monkey, a macaque, uh, voiced by Fred Tadeschior, assisted by the ghosts of an American assassin named Bryce, uh, voiced by Jason Sudeikis, also starring George Takai as Shinji, <laughs> Uh, Olivia Munn as a Kiko. Um, Sci-Fi Wire describes the, uh, the series as this. Hit Monkey was originally one of four Marvel shows greenlit at Hulu <laughs> alongside Modoc, Howard the Duck, Tigra, and Dazzler. Man. What a slate. Folks, <laughs> drop the strain from that particular pitch meeting where all that stuff got greenlit yeah. because I want it. <laughs> Haters said it couldn't be done. Haters said they could not make a show about a uh, 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 hitman monkey, but now it's here. I love to hear it. What a perfect time to be a comic book nerd. I, I can't believe, like you said, like when I read Deadpool versus Hit Monkey or whatever, like 15 years yeah. ago, I never would have pinged that one as the one that that gets a show. And now I'm completely stoked for it. And the animation looks dope as fuck too. Like it, the trailer it, it looked looks like, like, oh wow, this is like an action, like an action animated show. I can't wait for it. Now I, everything but Modok, obviously, and Hit Monkey mm -hmm. got axed. Mm -hmm. uh, but here we are, Hit Monkey. The trailer is out. I am, st <laughs> I still can't believe we live in a world. The the, the flex is unprecedented. <laughs> Number one, it, it, cool that they're using Hulu as like the place where um, you can see people get decapitated and stuff. Yeah. Like in a Marvel <laughs> property, mm -hmm. it's going to be like they're more adult, kind of more irreverent, non-canon world where you're going to see this stuff. Um, but st still, I can't believe that this happened. I have not checked in on Hitmonkey or Deadpool mm -hmm. versus Hitmonkey in, in 
12, 15 years, whatever it is. Well, who has really? I mean, who, who, I mean, <laughs> who has? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you're saying, like, I do like the idea that Hulu is like the Marvel Knights or the Marvel Max line. Right. Of, like, you know, we have like, you know, Disney Plus is pretty obvious. Like, they don't really, they really sort of stick to, like the PG 13, but really PG for most of their stuff. So it is nice getting an outlet where you can see these like, more uh, eccentric characters go on more eccentric, <laughs> eccentric yeah. uh, uh, epi- adventures and stuff, and also show a little bit of blood. Show some dude get his arm ripped off. Show a monkey air the air the clip out. Like I'm, I'm all for it. So for those of you who are like, "What the fuck is Hit Monkey? What is it about?" I, just off remembering, uh, going through my the foggy archives of my brain from a, a decade plus ago. Hit Monkey is a Japanese snow macaque who um, comes into contact with a dying assassin who like uh was ambushed or something and he wanders into like the uh, mountains uh comes across this tribe of monkeys who then take care of this assassin uh but then a hit monkey disagrees with this but like learns assassinating from this assassin and mm-hmm. then much like John Wick or like the Frank Castle backstory <laughs> hit monkey gains these skills to, of of assassinating but then <laughs> The assassins that tried to kill the hitman uh, come to the mountains. They kill his whole tribe of monkeys. Mm-hmm. And so now Hit Monkey, bent on revenge, goes and eventually <laughs> kills them and has these adventures. He dresses in a nice suit. Yeah, that's the most important part. He has like a little monkey tuxedo that he, he walks around the world in. <laughs> like, where does this happen? Now, I, 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 does that comport with your memories of Hit Monkey, the series? Yeah, I mean, my introduction to Hitmonkey was through Deadpool. I think there was a, a run, or there was like maybe a mm-hmm. one-off series called Deadpool versus Hitmonkey, where Deadpool just gets its ass whipped by this little monkey for, for four <laughs> issues. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like sign me up, because like I mean, I'm a huge Deadpool stan. Like he's one of my favorite characters. So like when he's getting fucking his ass waxed by a little monkey in a tuxedo, I was like, all right, this is a character I need to follow. Like that 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 tracks for me from what I remember reading it a decade and a half ago. So wild. So I'm, I'm excited for this. I will say, let me just, I feel the need to say this, okay? It's been a tough time for uh, Asian people just getting murdered by hitmen who are angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is happening a lot. So hopefully this is done in a, in a tasteful way. And if, yeah, I, I get it. Like, he, Hit Monkey is also uh, is Asian. That mm-hmm. said, we can do more than just be bodies that get dropped. That said, I'm excited for Hit Monkey. Yeah, I was. I, I watched Kate recently on Netflix, and like, I'm like, man, this this white lady just hurting everyone's feelings in Japan. This seems kind of crazy. Like, like, this is this I is don't... wild. Like, she's taking out yakuza like this. I mean, I mean, okay, maybe that's I mean she's a trained assassin. But yeah, I was like, oh, wow, this is wild. They just she's got bot. She's got numbers over here. She was running up the score, Mary Elizabeth. I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I I had to turn the movie off. Um, <laughs> let's talk about what if uh, episode six. What if Killmonger uh, rescued Tony Stark? Uh, in which Eric Stevens, otherwise known as Killmonger, in the mm-hmm. in like the depths of his run of mongering kills, <laughs> yeah. rescues Tony Stark uh, from the Ten Rings attack in Afghanistan, goes on to become his buddy, basically blows up uh, Obadiah Stane's spot mm-hmm. as Obadiah is in the midst of trying to betray Tony yeah. Stark, gets Tony's trust, uh, gets a bunch of vibranium, and long story short, ends up, uh, taking over Wakanda. This was, uh, it feels like this is going to lead directly into uh, the episodes that are that are coming or mm-hmm. some other second part episode because more than any of the other episodes, this one felt like 
there is a sequel somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I it, this one uh, this one in Marvel Zombies felt the most like, oh, this is setting up for either yeah. there's a two-parter later in this season or like I don't if they get another season, maybe they're going to do another thing where we'll just have like sequels stitched in that but like so i i came into this having just seen black panther at the hollywood bowl where they have like the live orchestra and stuff so like, i was yeah, already like dope. i was completely prepped for it i think this would have been if there's a second part mm-hmm. there's parts of this that were my favorite episode first oh, of yeah. all killmonger i think is i would argue at this point maybe the best villain in the marvel yeah uh, cinematic mm-hmm. universe canon because yeah. what is the saying like uh if the villain has a point that's probably a good yeah. villain yeah, look. I don't know Eric, who has a better point than Eric Stevens. <laughs> yeah, look, I, not not even my hot tip friends, like all my black friends, when 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 Black Panther dropped, I was like, "Yo, Killmonger was talking that talk right now." I mean, he went about <laughs> it, and maybe not the best manner, but like he's speaking some truth to power right now. Like, I I, I kind of rooting for him, and like even for this, like you know, Thanos is such a big character, like it's hard to like wrap your head around the idea of like mm-hmm. someone who wants to extinguish half the fucking universe. Like, yeah, like when you get to trillions, like you can't even comprehend that number. When it's like, yo, yeah. you gonna pay me what you owe, like. I can relate to that. Like, I, I can 100% relate to, to, to Killmonger. I think that's why that villain sticks around so so much. I, I completely agree. You know, it's like, to your point of, uh, I might disagree with uh, uh, the methodology. Mm-hmm. You know, Killmonger is like, hey, y'all owe us. And the world is like, okay, well, let's figure out, let's figure out a payment plan. It's going to be a multi-step <laughs> process. It'll probably take <laughs> yeah. like, half a century to maybe mm-hmm. a century to like actually work it all out. We'll spend the first 30 years to 50 years just like discussing whether or not we actually owe yeah. anything. And Killmonger is like, just no, forget all that. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm trying to skip that Twitter discourse. Let's get right okay. to it. B. Let's get right to it. That yeah. part is what makes him so absolutely mm-hmm. compelling. I will say I, I love this entire episode. I have one note. My one small note is <laughs> Michael B. Jordan needed to go harder in the paint on the Wakanda forever. Like, <laughs> I don't know if he, like, if they missed, like, if they, like, clearly, like, Michael B is a busy guy. They probably yeah. only had him for a very limited time. Mm. But when he recorded that line, it was like someone was sleeping in the next room and yeah, he was yeah, yeah. doing it on, like, Apple voice memo or something because yeah. he was just like, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, it's like he was about to step into like his Uber black to go to the airport. He's like, you know what? I got to knock this ADR request. Uh, Wakanda forever. All right, great. Send a yeah, yeah, check. Yeah. We'll see you. Wakanda forever. You know, like when you put it, when you put it in the back of your uh, neck and pretend yeah. that you're screaming like a fake falsetto or something, it's like, yeah. man. He was walking out of uh, the VO booth and yelling it into the mic as he was like leaving, <laughs> leaving the session. Wakanda forever. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. I needed that a little stronger. I'm excited. I, of course, this is going to come out uh, the day that the uh, the next episode of mm-hmm. Marvel's What If is coming out, which has been teased uh, to include Thor. Um, that we can let's. Uh, what are you expecting for the end of the season of What If? Um, uh, you know, it's it's such a it's such a mixed bag, and that being a good thing as far as like you know these are mostly standalone episodes so far. I really do hope that they sort of start wrapping tying things into other stuff that's happened because it's like you know um in the doctor strange episode like that's the first time yeah. that we acknowledge that they they're like people can interact with the watcher at least people that are like yes. that have cosmic seeings cosmic you know um intuition or whatever so like i'm hoping that at some point that you know the watcher gets brought in and like 
has something that as affects the universe like you need to break his code like that's always the thing with the watcher like you wait right. for him you're wanting you're waiting for him to break his code and like i'm curious to see if that happens or what that thing is like i'm wondering if they're gonna tie in king to it all like what's the king of it Ooh. since that's the person that sort of kick-started all this holy all this whole multiverse conversation so like i'm hoping that it becomes a little bit more canonical and also that we see some like we have a more active watcher like he was in the doctor strange um episode yeah, I agree. I think that um, I said this on last week's episode with Rosie, but he I think that we're going to see the watcher break his code, obviously. And I think mm-hmm. that that is going to take the form of him being like the cosmic Nick Fury assembling yeah. the guardians of the of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, they, do, they don't know each, about each other. Um, so the watcher is going to be like, OK, the multiverse, you know, I. I I'm out of a job if the multiverse goes. There's nothing to <laughs> yeah. watch. Therefore, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to have to put all y'all in contact with uh, with each other. Like, I know this hero. I know this uh, corrupted strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also know this killmonger who is bad, but maybe you could use him. Uh, I also know uh, this T'Challa who is Star-Lord. Like, and he's yeah. going to start plucking people from these uh, various multi. I know this Captain Carter and he's going to start putting them in contact with each other mm-hmm. and that will be the finale in which they take on you know infinite ultron yeah um that is my theory that's a solid theory i'm with that one i want to read it i want to watch it let's get into star wars visions hear that it's the call of the crave and when the crave calls you know what to do try the five dollar bacon bundle because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle, follow your crave. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. by the force since you were born. At last, the moment arrives. We're back. Today we're stepping out of the airlock and into the Star Wars universe as never seen before in the new anime-inspired... Yes. You can say inspired? I mean, it's just anime. It's straight-up anime. Uh, It's (laughs) straight-up anime (laughs) anthology series, Star Wars Visions. We're going to be covering the first three episodes, The Duel, Tatooine Rhapsody, and Mm -hmm. The Twins. Mm-hmm. These are, man, uh, all very, very different and all yeah. very, very cool. Let's start with The Duel uh, by Kamikaze Duga. In a remote village, a mysterious Ronin uh, duels a Sith bandit leader while droves of armed bandits attempt to uh, pillage and plunder a town. Ultimately, it becomes clear that our wandering Ronin is also maybe a failed Sith or mm-hmm. just a Jedi who didn't go through with his training. Whatever the case may be, uh, The Duel is... 
exciting and ends with the death of the bandit leader. Uh, the Ronin is voiced by Brian T, Sith bandit leader uh, by Lucy Liu, and the village chief uh, by Jaden Waldman, uh, directed by Takanubu Mizuno. Uh, just totally Ooh. cool. There's going to be a standalone novel uh, oh, based Lord. on this. It's great that they started with this one yeah. because mm-hmm. it is the one that makes the most obvious nod to the original Japanese cinema influences Mm -hmm. on Star Wars, Mm -hmm. uh, the films of Kurosawa, this kind of like black and white, Mm -hmm. grainy uh, texture. What did you think of this uh, episode? I'm going to be saying this a lot for every episode, but it is the exact shit that I wanted. Like, uh, like you're saying, like, <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's very much like, you know, it's it's Seven Samurai. It's the Hidden Fortress. Like, you yeah. know, it's it's a classic. It's a classic Samurai Chan Bar Western. where like, oh, uh, a, a drifter comes into town and they has to yes. save them from the bandits. And like, I also love a running theme that's throughout these episodes is that the idea of like the gray Jedi or like the gray Sith. And like, yeah. I also love that they finally completely married. Like, yeah, all, the katanas are just lightsabers. Like, they keep them in hilts for whatever yeah. reason. And like, whenever my boy draws out his sword to like get into that first stance, like I'm with it. Like, I also love that they have the callbacks. To like, other like I love like the the little Saboba guy is driving like the yes. little little droid racer. Like, I love that the uh, the, the, the 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 dude with the minigun is like that. You know, the assassination robot. Like, I, I loved all that shit. I also love that you know just the um the the art direction as far as like the bandits are like all like they had like the stormtroopers masks that are all like sort of held yeah. together with like you know duct tape and spit like it's the, it's a perfect introduction like to what what this status quo that this series is trying to set as far as like we're going to go in a galaxy that's far far away because it's space we can have like feudal japan planet we can have you know miyazaki yes. world. we can have like robot a astro boy planet like it's the perfect work episode to like get you primed for this world and what you're going to be watching yeah this is exactly what i wanted and it was the perfect way to open it the vibe mm-hmm. when the sith bandit leader arrives so the village guards the chief of the village is a child flips the script on the bandits who have rounded up the villagers out come the uh, hired mercenaries that guard the town and it's like as you said like one of them is like a bounty hunter droid with a huge minigun mm-hmm. another is like a, a bosque like trandoshan with like yeah. two huge swords yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another one is like the Imperial spy drone from Empire Strikes Back with like samurai swords. And they just like wipe out these bandits. And then the Sith uh, leader comes out of her ship, surveys the destruction and just says very quietly, disgraceful. (laughs) And then the the music kicks in like, and I was like, Look, whenever the boss comes yes. out and they say they say one word like yeah. mediocre, like I, you, someone's ass is about to get fucking whipped, and like she pulls out that she has like her like special lightsaber umbrella that like yeah. has like eight different spindles. I'm like, yo, yes, sign me the f up, boy. This is this is exactly the shit like, that I want. Yes, uh, it was just so 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 cool. You know, I had just like I said, I had just rewatched all the Star Wars movies. So, like seeing that sort of take on like the Anakin um, um, Obi Wan fight on like the lava, like Mustafar seeing yeah. them like on like the log going down the river, and like uh, it, was, it was it was dope. Uh, it was such such a fun like re like reimagining of of what we we what, all the notes that we're used to seeing in these movies. I, I agree, and I I found myself thinking about the like globalization of like pop culture influences mm-hmm. and how you know it must have been weird and disorienting but also exciting to be mm-hmm. like a Japanese person watching Star Wars and picking out all these influences and seeing mm-hmm. how they were mashed together when you you know when you saw the first Star Wars trilogy similarly 
to watch these to and and you know speaking about the duel right now by Kamikaze Yuga mm. and see the way all the Star Wars influences are just thrown together in a way that is very uh it's very purposeful but it's also like not bound by the quote unquote rules that would yeah. happen like if it like if if this was an adaptation done by a Western studio or an American studio, they'd be like, well, you can't do this because yeah, like yeah. This, the, where is this planet even? And mm-hmm. this character was not around. And like, how would they have gotten up? Forget that. Let's just yeah. throw all this shit together. And it's cool. Yeah. Um, I love that. There's like an int- the energy of that is so fun because I honestly like the childhood energy of Star Wars to me mm-hmm. was just being like, oh, my God, what is that? Who yeah. is that? Yeah. Who is that person mm-hmm. that was in the background for two seconds? Yeah. What like what is that like? And this captures that because yeah. it's like it's just like all these little details that you want to know more about everything. Yeah. Well, it's like you know Boba Fett was like, oh, that's the dude, with the cool helmet that says nothing yeah. in the second Empire Strikes Back, and like, and even Bosk, like he just you see his toes and you see his face, like that's all that he does in those movies. But you're like, oh, this dude looks cool. Like I want to I want to do this. And like I think that another cool thing, as you're mentioning, is like the idea of like. Since it's, this is going to like Japanese studios, which are like obviously yeah. influence the, these movies, it's like they're being distilled down and reinterpreted by the people and culture that originally influenced it. So like they're able to yeah. to have those those like those tropes and cliches, like and, and not not even cliches in a bad way, but being like they can they yeah. can like really hammer those home. Like when Lucy Liu pulls out her lightsaber and the dude catches yeah. it with his hand for this force, I was like, that's my shit. Like that's such yes. a uh, that's such a classic clean trope in like any like you know samurai anime or just samurai movies in general. And like seeing that applied through the force and like just seeing that like little tweak reinterpretation and like how they apply it to Star Wars was like such a breath of fresh air. Um, about the standalone novel, it's going to be written by Emma Miko Kandon. It arrives October 12th, expands the story of the Sith Ronin, according to StarWars.com. James Waugh, the VP of Franchise Content and Strategy, says, quote, Out of all the shorts, the duel felt most rife for an ongoing story in a novel. The team at Kamikaze Duga were very generous in obliging our interest in continuing the storytelling had a ton of ideas to lend in the creative process. The author, uh, Emma, says, quote, I love that Visions as a whole is a grand recursive experiment, a fairy tale of a fairy tale, (laughs) a myth built upon modern mythology. It makes the most sense in terms of, it's the most disconnected from other stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other episodes take place like in particular worlds that you will recognize. Mm -hmm. So this is, it's the perfect one to kind of like stretch their legs on. Yeah, it screams like side story, and that's what I think. That's a, that's a big offering that this that this particular episode, or even the, like this micro universe, can can really expand on. Next, Tatooine Rhapsody by Studio Colorido, Twin Engine. Uh, a former Jedi Padawan becomes the singer of an aspiring <laughs> rock band. Very subtly carries his microphone slash lightsaber yeah. like on his belt, just like has it there. Uh, the band's name is Star Waver, and they ultimately come into conflict with Jabba the Hutt and Boba Fett because a member of their band is Jabba's son. Mm. And Jabba <laughs> wants him back. The cast is uh, Jay, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Geezer, played by Bobby Moynihan, Boba Fett, Tamora Morrison, K344, Shelby Young, and Lan Mark Thompson. Uh, this was uh, super fun. This is the yeah. one where you're like, if you start to think about where and when this possibly mm-hmm. could have taken place. In yeah. Clone Wars, you're introduced to Jabba's son. Jabba's son is a child at that point. It's not mm-hmm. clear that it's the, it's not the same person. This is like completely different. This takes place on Tatooine, like in the pod racing arena. Yeah. Um, super fun. 
like music based. (laughs) It's the most like anime of it all as far as like we're going to have a bunch of fun. It's going to be a slice of life music anime and like we're going to just we're just going to map Star Wars over it. Like I love that uh, Geezer is like his dirtbag son that has like (laughs) He has like hair transplants and like a nose ring, and he plays <laughs> he plays space bass in, yeah, in his garage space his garage band. Like, I mean, this is perfect because like one of the music in Star Wars bands in Star yeah. Wars is such a underexplored part of mm-hmm. the in world reality. Like, yeah. obviously, the, the you know there is the band on. Uh, Java's barge. Mm-hmm. There is the band in the cantina. Yeah. There is like music all around, but this is the first time we ever really uh, explored it in a way that like centers it. And two, yeah. like you know, in the world of Star Wars, other than the animation stuff, like just from the movies, you don't get you don't very often, other than the music, get a sense of like culture popular culture what people talk about like Mm -hmm. what people go and do as like entertainment other than pod racing and and Mm -hmm. like these little snippets of like a musical adventure that's why i love this the idea that there's like this band that's like on on the rise (laughs) out here in the galaxy (laughs) is so fun yeah i mean that's funny that you say that because we get those snippets of like people like going to bars like going to cantinas Mm -hmm. they like doing death sticks but like that's really all that we have as far as like what people do when they're not like in war in, the, in yeah, this right. universe. So it is, it is like, it's such a fun, like I, I this is one that I also want to see a sequel to. Like, I just want to see that world blown out because like, it's such a fun niche thing that could only happen in this universe. Like you're saying like, yeah, what are the, what are the dudes that play the space flutes doing the cantina band? Like, what were the influence? Like, what are their like Miles Davis that they got them into like playing space jazz? Like, I want to see like, I want to see like the space strokes. Like what do these guys turn into? You know? Yeah. The space strokes. <laughs> I love that. I love that uh, Jay's pitch to Jabba is like, hey, how about you become our 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 first sponsor? What about that? <laughs> yeah. What a perfect like, um, you know, all, you know, Star Wars is so heavy. Like, you know, good and yeah. bad must come together and face each other with blows. And this was like, yo, we need money for a new space fan. Um, we would love if you didn't kill our bass player and we can make you a lot of money in the end. I mean, look at this. Like, we filled the pod racing stadium. People are going fucking apeshit, Jabba. Like, do you want a part of this? Yeah. Also, don't pretend that I didn't see your tail yeah. tapping to the beat, <laughs> yeah. my guy. Yeah, you yeah. felt we, it. Yeah, yeah. We we used the slaps job, and we see you slapping with it. B. Imagine we get Kendrick on a track. Game over. <laughs> Space Kendrick. I, I would say my one my one note is like maybe we should have brought in a pitch singer for uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> my guy was like a full step and a half flat <laughs> yeah. for the entire verse and chorus. Yeah. I got to feel that verse and chorus and I didn't mm. feel it quite as much as I needed to, but still it was super fun. He Incredibly committed to it. He, he committed. He committed. To, he committed. And he also committed to like this little, my favorite like anime noise, just like the, the like all that yeah, stuff he, is like, he went hard. Like yeah. he went hard in the way Michael B needed to go hard. <laughs> what kind of forever? Yeah. Because he like screamed the screams. Yeah. Really, really, really fun one. If people are feeling these first two animes, what would you mm-hmm. say are like the comps to like go out and oh and, boy and watch? Yeah, I mean the first one definitely. I mean this is live action, but Yojimbo like that's obviously Seven yeah. Samurai. But like yeah. anime wise, I'd say um, Basilisk. Uh, it's a fun like um, uh, uh, samurai anime. It's like a uh, Ninja Scroll. Like those are two 
two ones I think are very mm-hmm. fun cops uh, that I think. Oh, and sort of the stranger. Like those are three that I think really complement complement this. Uh, as far as like Tattoo Rhapsody, it's funny because I I don't watch that much like musical anime, but like yeah. this is like a nice like slice of life. So like I think if you like just Google any like modern comedy anime like that'll be a fun one to jump into uh, uh any like uh, anything that's like that looks bright and happy and weird and has like weird like character proportions like you're going to be into it and i think that will be a perfect compliment for tattoon rhapsody uh next up is the twins a really really fun episode that really explores like the duality of mm-hmm. the force through twins twins bred and groomed to harness the power of the dark side uh, guess what? One of them decides that they don't necessarily want to do that anymore, <laughs> yeah. and then you get a fight. Yeah. Uh, the cast is Kare, voiced by Neil Patrick Harris, Um, Allison Brie, and B20N, Jonathan Lipow, uh, directed by Hiroyuki Imaishi. Uh, Justin Leach, CEO of Cubic Pictures, said at the Anime Light Expo of the Twins, quote, subverts the idea of Luke and Leia and imagines a brand new set of twins born into the dark side and how far the brother will go to save his sister. Um, finally, we saw a humanoid General Grievous multi-armed yes. Sith with lightsabers. That's all I want. <laughs> yeah, I love my dark side waifu. Uh, I can save her. I can fix her. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> she's problematic, but just give yeah. me time with her. Yeah, yeah, she's my problematic fave. We'll get some couple therapy. We'll fix her. Uh, speaking of like coming off the the you know Joseph Gordon Levitt going for it, Allison Brie fucking went for it in this as well. Like, went for it hard. Like she was, she yeah. went hard in the motherfucking paint. Um, I think I mean this is the this is of the ones that we were reviewing today. Like this is the one that is the most like bombastic anime like that could only that could think things that could only transpire in animation that lends itself to this like uh just gonna jump straight to it like my dude making a hyper lightsaber out of a special yes. crystal and then jumping on front of an x-wing and going through hyper speed to like cut a, a star destroyer <laughs> in half is the most hype shit i've ever seen and also shit that could only get away with by studio trigger the production company that made this one like that's their bag like they do bombastic hype ass uh hyper kinetic animation and they completely get away with it now if I'm asking myself, why does the droid have a space suit on at the end? I, I didn't even care. I was like, you know, I chalk it, <laughs> yeah, up, right. I chalk it up to the force. <laughs> I mean, why does like Kare have an X-Wing like on an Imperial ship? Yeah. None of it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't care. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. It's interesting because when I was, um, I spent all weekend just like reading histories of anime and there's some really mm-hmm. good economic papers about you know, just like the um, the movement of pop culture yeah. in the 21st century and how anime is an example of a market that was, the spread here in the United States is an example of a market that was purely fan-driven. Like everybody mm-hmm. who tried to make this happen on a popular, on a, from an actual like professional corporate level failed mm-hmm. in numerous ways. Either <laughs> the, the Japanese studios couldn't find a partner that would honor their material that mm-hmm. wouldn't just like cut it up and dub like wild shit over it. Yeah. yeah. Or they couldn't find a distributor who understand what they were about. Similarly. Uh, meanwhile, the fans were just like, send these tapes over. <laughs> we will translate them on our own yeah. and we will disperse them on our own. Mm-hmm. And we will do that because nobody is, is feeding this market. Literally yeah. nobody else mm-hmm. is, is, is doing this. Um, and it, it is super fascinating. And one of the things that was driving this was that, to your point, there was a level of bombast that was just not seen 
in American slash Western animation, which yeah. is primarily for kids. Yeah. Like in Japan, the tradition is, mm. the manga tradition is, this is popular storytelling for everyone. Like you yeah. see adults reading this. Similarly mm-hmm. with anime, this there's no like age cutoff for this shit. Like adult themes, yeah. incredible violence. Like if you want to know, you know, what's a shortcut to like universal storytelling, stylized violence, incredibly yeah. stylized violence in which like, like, ships containing a million people get blown up or cut in half. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that is the shit you will see in anime, and that was the thing that uh, really hooked people in the late 70s and 80s because mm-hmm. they were like, oh my God, what the hell is this? I've never yeah. seen anything like this. Yeah. Um, and that was what the twins felt like to me. Yeah, 100%. Because I, I was thinking, thinking of that, like, you know, we, we had like G.I. Joes and Transformers, which were like, yes, n- nothing really happens. Like, you know, there's no stakes to like what you're watching. Like there's like Roblox. I'm assuming there's a character named Roblox. That sounds like a wrecker, like there whatever. Are- yeah. Roblox might get his leg blown off in episode one and then have right. it not be there in episode two. Like there are just no stakes. But for this is like one is like you also like everything is dialed up to fucking 25. So like the emotions are super heightened. Like the like it's just like also it compacts everything down. Like you get the Leia and Luke story in like what is this like 15 minutes. Like you get all that compacted yeah. really to one sequence in like a 15 minute thing. So like already like you're you're fucking speeding through this at 100 miles per hour it's like you're on edge and like you want to see how it plays out because also the animation is so kinetic and 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 dialed up to 25 yeah to your point as a as a fan of gi joe as a kid it used to annoy me so much that every time gi joe and cobra would get in like some scuffle to to, you know the big set piece (laughs) battle Yeah, yeah yeah at the end of every episode they'd be blowing up each other's jets big explosion as the jet gets shot down, you know, the pilot would eject and mm-hmm. you see the parachute and they like gently drift to the ground to let all those kids watching at home. Don't worry, nobody. This is a huge battle between yeah. two <laughs> multinational security forces uh, and like a wild uh, high tech terrorist outfit. But actually nobody died in any yeah. of these battles. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you know, had anime come into my life at that time, I would have been like, yes. This is- yeah, you would have been scarred. Yes. I remember the first time I, I mean, the first anime I ever watched was this, this show called Robotech. And like it was a that was a show that was serialized, and like one yeah. of the main characters bites it like episode eight. I'm like, wait a minute, is he going to be here like next episode? Like, no, he he bleed, he bleeds to death in his hospital beds. Like he's he's gone. I was like, oh wow, I'm not used to this. I'm used to like Optimus Prime coming back the next <laughs> right, the right, next yeah. Saturday or whatever. I mean, like you know, for uh, for me, one of the most scarring uh, moments in. Uh, childhood animation is optimus prime dying i was yeah. like wait what how can you do this how dare you yeah uh you know meanwhile in uh in anime people are dying getting they're getting cut in half like yeah. all the time and it mattered <laughs> yeah they don't and also they don't get graceful deaths they're like they get fucking murked by someone that they love <laughs> you know they get killed in a phone booth and you're like oh wow no dignity in this death uh so wait when you watch robotech um, were you watching the original Japanese Robotech, or were you no, still watching was, the dubbed version? Or I watched, I was watching the Harmony Gold dub. So like, I'm a Toonami stan. Like that's yeah. what like, that fucking changed the game for me. I was like 12 or 13, and like that was the first like anime I ever saw. I was like, oh wow, this is one. Like it had robots. I love robots, but also it was the first show that I'd be cognizant of being like, oh, this is serialized. Like what happens in episode one is going to affect episode 27, which is going to affect episode 32 or whatever. And right. like having those stakes happen, also having like characters that you attach to and then having them die was like oh wow this is like this is this is real like i've never seen that type of stuff and like that's what fucking unlocked the gate to like the nerddom that i currently find myself yelling about anime star wars right now one big snowball baby 
So of these three, which is your favorite and why? Oh man, it's the dual Tatooine Rhapsody and the twins. I you know, I think aesthetically, I think aesthetically distilled down, the duel is what star for me is like what I think Star Wars is when it comes to like the influences, the action, the the the, the subtle stuff as far as like, you know, good, bad, and even having the idea of like the gray, like this also the twins yeah. covers the idea of like someone turning to the light. Like I love all that. Also it's in and out. Like you get a taste of like these worlds can be whatever they want to. Like you said, we can have feudal planet. We can have, yeah. you know, we can have rock garage rock planet. Like the duel hits all that stuff. And also you see all the love letters, like your Jimbo seven samurai, yeah. uh, all those things are still down that I think the duel just like really captures. Like it's what you see. It's the perfect pilot for what you need right off the gate for this series. Yeah, that was my favorite one as well. I think then followed by uh, the twins. Mm-hmm. I, it, you know, the duel. There is something perfect and circular about like closing that loop and mm-hmm. like uh, acknowledging original influence of Kurosawa's pictures on Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You know, famously Hidden Fortress. Mm-hmm. You know, Lucas openly took a bunch of plot points from that movie and used it to build up uh, the early drafts of Star Wars. Like at one point, the character that became Darth Vader was named General Akira. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, there's a bunch of stuff in there. And so acknowledging that was super cool. And then just the textures and feel of it, like taking animation, putting that like dirty film, black and white, (laughs) gray film grain but then having the lightsabers have these pops of color, the laser mm-hmm. beams be these pops of blasters, be these pops of color, the explosions. Yeah, that little blue on his like on his wrist, like his yeah, to call yeah. his to call his R two droid. Uh, the, the the way that it took like the archetypical essential story beats of a Star Wars story, right? The battle mm-hmm. between uh, good and evil. These lived in high-tech futuristic worlds where you can imagine people just like working and going about their day (laughs) an incredible duel droids like all that shit together in basically like under 13 minutes i think it was just Mm -hmm. it, it was the perfect introduction and i think you know for me who is not as versed in anime there is so much Star Wars there and it's so upfront with its influences that yeah. it just if it, you feel like it's like a great uh, syllabus to be like, I want to dive in further. How do I get there? Yeah, it's a great like cultural bridge. We're like, all right, this is we can, we're going to bring fans over to anime. We're going to bring anime fans over to Star Wars and like we can all have them populate and, and find some more gems in, in both of those those mediums of, of, of storytelling. If people wanted to get into some of these, uh, the studios that created these, mm-hmm. um, Kamikaze Duga, Studio Trigger, Twin Engine, do you have like a some movies that they should check out or some? Uh... Yeah, um, Studio Trigger. Uh, Studio Trigger is one of the best in the game. Like what you, what you saw for the twins is a great encapsulation of like their style when it comes to like character design and like action and like also humor um i i highly recommend kill a kill that was uh probably like one of their most well-known first series i think it's on netflix all the seasons are on there or hulu one of the two um and also if you're looking for like a feature that they did uh pro mayor i think p-r-o-m-a-r-e that's on mm. i believe uh amazon uh it's a it's a fantastic 
uh, fantastic feature with like some amazing animation uh, and some crazy character designs. Uh, that's a, also like that their style. If you notice, like they don't do a lot of like borders for their stuff. Like they'll have like right. outlines for characters, but a lot of their like background is just like the paint. That's it. You don't get any like bordering and stuff. Like that's a really cool uh, film to see that that throughout like a whole feature. I highly recommend both of those. Uh, this has been so fun. I can't wait to have you back so we can talk about the rest of the season. <laughs> Up next, I crack open the omnibus. Welcome to another chapter in the Omnibus where lore analysis and understanding come together. Today we explore the life and work of director Akira Kurosawa, his influence on Star Wars, and the globalization of anime which set the stage for Star Wars Visions, a series that we are watching and talking about today. It makes sense in all of this to start with The Hidden Fortress. Director Akira Kurosawa's 1958 classic about a mismatched pair of commoners who bumble their way into a mission to rescue a willful princess from the upheaval of a civil war is the most famous example of the influence of Japanese culture on Star Wars. Whenever the film comes up in conversation, someone will mention, hey, George Lucas uh, was inspired by that to make Star Wars. Indeed, George Lucas's early scripts for A New Hope hewed so closely to fortresses that according to John Baxter and George Lucas, a biography, the director briefly considered purchasing the film's remake rights. Quote, Hidden Fortress was an influence on Star Wars right from the very beginning, Lucas says in J.W. Rinsler's The Making of Star Wars. Fortress is known as a Jedi Jeki, a genre of action adventure usually set during Japan's Edo period, which is thought to be the phonic source of the word Jedi. In the first draft of Star Wars, the villain who became Darth Vader is named Akira. Obi-Wan Kenobi would have hit different if the actor playing him was the Hidden Fortress's star and frequent Kurosawa collaborator Toshiro Mifune, and Lucas explored the possibility of casting Mifuni before settling on Alec Guinness. And of course, the Jedi themselves are essentially space samurai. Akira Kurosawa casts a Death Star-sized shadow over American popular culture and international cinema. 1950s Rashomon won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival and launched Kurosawa to global acclaim. The movie occupies an interesting cultural space. On the one hand, it's only been officially remade once, 1964 is The Outrage, starring Paul Newman. On the other hand, since its release, every story which has come out, every movie, in which a single event is examined from multiple points of view, owes something to Rashomon. Rashomon has since become a synonym for the subjective nature of reality and the punchline for a very, very funny joke on The Simpsons. Basically, Marge is like, you liked Rashomon. And then Homer is like, no, I didn't. And then they remember this one situation very differently. Kurosawa's 1961 film Yojimbo and its sequel Sanjuro introduced the trope of the mysterious protagonist, later popularized by Clint Eastwood's character in Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars trilogy. The man with no name would later influence uh, Logan's look and vibe in Frank Miller's four-issue Wolverine limited series. Another major influence on Star Wars, Kurosawa's 1954 masterpiece, The Seven Samurai, is credited with creating the team of specialists on a mission trope, which spawned any number of movies and stories that you can imagine. The Fast and the Furious, Marvel's The Avengers, The Ocean's Eleven, the remake, and almost every heist movie of the last 60 years. The Town, 
Akira Kurosawa was born in Tokyo in 1910 to a family descended from samurai. The youngest of eight children, Akira wanted to be a painter. His father, however, a former military officer and physical education teacher, encouraged him towards the cinema, which was just then emerging in Japan. In 1935, Kurosawa answered an advertisement from PCL Studios and was hired on as an assistant director the next year. During this time, Japan was reaching the culmination of a decades-long program of rapid modernization. In the late 1860s, Japan was a fractious collection of feuding states with a weak military, a pre-modern agrarian economy hamstrung by extortionate trade treaties forced on the country by Europe and the United States. Fast forward to 1912, and Japan has a strong central bureaucracy governing the country, which enjoyed a burgeoning industrial base, a highly educated population who zipped around the country in a modern railway system. Once preyed upon by colonial powers, Japan, behind its modern army and navy, had itself become a colonizer after prying the Korean peninsula away from China in 1895. Uh, The lasting effects of that continue to this day. When Russia, uh, one of the so-called great powers of the era, began encroaching on Japan's Korean holdings, Japan in 1904 launched a surprise attack on the Tsar's fleet, sparking the Russo-Japanese War. Japan's defeat of Russia, it's fair to say, shocked the world and elevated Japan to a first world power. And it is really hard to fathom from an American perspective what the effect of this rapid tectonic change had on Japan and its culture. In The Asian Influence on Hollywood Action Films, Barna William Donovan writes of this period, quote, Japanese society founded on centuries of reverence for tradition and a very powerful sense of cultural identity would now begin to struggle with the question of how modernization, industrial development, foreign contact, and the need to attain the status of a global power could, at the same time, remain compatible with their insular traditional Japanese-ness. Kurosawa's career as a director took place during and immediately after World War II. Under Japan's wartime censorship regime, films were, as Leonard Epp describes in the Oxonian Review, quote, anti-Western and preferred representations of devoted and unindividuated workers who were subordinate at least to a social goal, if not also to a received and semi-feudalistic notion of an authentic Japan, which was under attack from Western influences, end quote. During the American occupation, the Americans put in their own censorship regime, and in addition to managing what American and European movies could be shown in Japan during this time, Alfred Hitchcock's lifeboat, for instance, was denied because it depicted a Nazi captain briefly in control of the fate of the lifeboat's passengers. 1945's A Medal for Benny was not allowed to be shown due to the film's celebration of the protagonist's killing of numerous Japanese soldiers during wartime. Probably a good idea. The bureaucracy demanded that domestically produced films break with Japan's feudal past and should criticize Japan's wartime actions. Akira Kurosawa's 1945 film, They Who Tread on the Tiger's Trail, was denied release because it was set in 12th century feudal Japan and promoted uh, Japanese feudal values. It was released later in 1952 after the Treaty of San Francisco, which reinstated peaceful relations between Japan and the United States and ended the American occupation. But by then, of course, Rashomon had won Kurosawa international recognition and set his career on a path toward the most rarefied levels of influence, respect, and acclaim that an artist can reach. It is ironic, then, that Kurosawa's reputation in his home country at the time, and now, is decidedly mixed. 
In the early 1970s, new wave Japanese directors reacted against Kurosawa's reputation and his perceived cinematic authority, writes Leonard Epp in the Oxonian Review. They rebelled against what they saw as an American style, which was overly individualistic and too directly influenced by Westerns in the style of John Ford, end quote. Kurosawa was always open about his admiration for American films and Western literature and, most notably, the work of director John Ford. This, along with, ironically, his acclaim in the U.S., was used against Kurosawa by his critics and contemporaries who derided his work as old-fashioned, elitist, arrogant, and shaped by the biases of a Western audience, pandering to American audiences, essentially. By the 1960s, Kurosawa found himself out of step in Japan, but with the standing of an auteur in Hollywood. In 1966, 20th Century Fox hired him to direct the World War II epic Tora 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 about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. After working on the script for two years, Kurosawa was either fired or resigned two weeks into shooting. The rumor has it that he was too authoritarian with his American actors. If that's the case, there is surely some kind of like cultural uh, misunderstanding there as well. Uh, That said, I I think it's fair to say if you read anything about Kurosawa that he was quite imperious with the people he worked with. Let's put it that way. I think it's fair to call him arrogant. Uh, In 1970, Dodeskaden, Kurosawa's first color film was savaged by Japanese critics and it later flopped at the box office. Kurosawa fell into a deep depression and in 1971 attempted suicide. In the last decades of his career, the filmmaker would find it impossible to finance his projects in Japan. George Lucas, Coppola, and Spielberg used their clout with American studios to raise funds for Kagamusha in 1980, Ran in 1985, and Dreams in 1990, writes Barna William Donovan. Kurosawa's dip in fortunes was, ironically, in part a failure to react to the rise of television in Japan. Japanese film studios never recovered from the shock of television. While younger directors adapted to the new age by making cheaper films or working for television, Kurosawa refused, Ian Baruma wrote in a 1989 article about Kurosawa. Japanese television's ascent was fueled, ironically, in part by the domestic audience's hunger for a new form of entertainment, anime. The transnational pathways of globalization that led us to Star Wars visions just wander off in really, really unexpected directions when you dig into it. In the 1970s, new consumer products invented and mass-produced in Japan, notably the Walkman, but in particular for our purposes, uh, the Betamax and most influentially the VCR, the video cassette recorder, made culture portable in a way that was simply impossible previously. Americans in Japan, many of whom were members of the military based in the country, began recording Japanese broadcasts of shows like Astro Boy and Star Blazers off Japanese television and sent the tapes back to the States. In May 1977, Several Los Angeles area anime enthusiasts founded the Cartoon Fantasy Organization, CFO, the first anime fan club, and the organization quickly spread. The Cartoon Fantasy Organization will meet from 10.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. today behind the bank of the hills on research. Features will include Grandizer, Dangard, Dangard Ace, Space Ketters, Starvengers, Brave Radian, and Astro Boy. The group meets on the second Saturday of each month, end quote, 
reads an event posting in the September 12th, 1981 issue of the Austin American Statesman. The October 12th, 1984 edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer ran a bemused coverage of the Philadelphia chapter of the CFO's second anniversary meetup. Quote, a little unusual, this CFO is, but definitely original. While other Philadelphians are cruising Saturday night hotspots trying to look like Michael Jackson or Prince, the club's members are searching for artistic and creative merit in science fiction shows that the rest of the world might find terribly strange. That's 1984, folks. A rather good profile of the CFO appears in the November 19th, 1987 edition of the Chicago Tribune, which states that the CFO at the time had 30 chapters with several thousand members in Chicago, Denver, Dallas, Houston, San Francisco, and other cities. In a 2004 paper, Progress Against the Law, about the spread of anime in the U.S., cultural globalization, and copyright theft, which I urge you to read if you want a great history of anime up to the mid-2000s, MIT's Sean Leonard writes that anime fan distribution networks, quote, represented prostylization commons, or spaces where media and ideas could be freely exchanged in order to advance a directed cause, which I think is a good description of the internet in 2021. An examination of Japanese and American popular culture across pollinization reveals these dizzying metatextual details that surround us. It's not often clear who pollinated whom. Up next, Alicia Lutz joins us for The Hive Mind. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we dive deeper into a particular topic with the help of a guest panelist on today's episode. Actually, Vision is happy to welcome writer Alicia Lutz. You can find her most recent article on Vulture, which features an interview with Ted Lasso's Phil Dunster. Alicia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's a thrill. Let's talk about, with the release of Star Wars Visions, it's worth unpacking the role that the movies mm-hmm. now play in the overall firmament of the Star Wars universe. Uh, I guess we could boil that topic down to, does it matter if the Star Wars movies suck or not? The the <laughs> most recent trilogy, I think the general consensus, it was disappointing. But it feels like with Star Wars Visions, with The Mandalorian, with all the various Disney Plus shows that are coming out, with Star Wars Rebels, with the finale of Clone Wars, it kind of doesn't matter because we have so much stuff. Let's talk about it. Alicia, let's start with you. Does it, like, where do you think, what is the role of the Star Wars movies now 
with all this other Star Wars content that is out there? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that um, Lucasfilm and Star Wars thought really big, um, but they got themselves stuck in a trap by sort of repeating old patterns and thinking that they were getting- It's a trap! Sorry, I had to do it. I know, I, I thought about not doing it, but then I felt everybody listening to this doing it so that I had to do it. I'm sorry, continue. You know what? It's fair. It's absolutely fair. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think that it's just, they set themselves up for failure with the most recent trilogy. Although I am somebody who does- like a lot of what was being presented in The Last Jedi, um, even though that there's very constructive and valid reasons why some of the things in that film didn't work. But what I think Ryan Johnson was trying to get at in that was that the force belongs to everyone. And I think that we're getting to see that in Star Wars Visions. We're getting to see that in, you know, Clone Wars and Rebels. And you get to see these other parts of the universe that have so many different stories to tell. And it's just such a deliciously um, verdant breeding ground for all of the different types of stories that can be told in this vast universe. Like it's galaxies. It's not just one family yeah, yeah. just doing the thing over and over mm -hmm. again, you know? Yeah, I think it was Karl Marx who said that we must seize the means of producing the kyber crystals <laughs> <laughs> and socialize the force for everyone. Yeah, I like... You know, I feel the same way about the about the the most recent trilogy and that there's like a lot of stuff to admire. Honestly, in all the three movies, Last Jedi is my favorite of those. There was good stuff in all of them, but on, on the whole, it, it felt a little bit like movie making by committee, yes. whereas mm. The Mandalorian, Rebels, and now Star Wars Visions, there is a reason behind them existing and there's something that they are saying. Mm -hmm. um, totally. Zig, what do you, what is what are your thoughts about like where the movies stand in the, in the I, current content offerings? I mean, both of y'all are spitting straight facts right now. I, I think that one is having just, I was just telling Jason, I had just rewatched all the movies in chronological order because I'm very unemployed at the moment. So but my, <laughs> my, my big takeaway rewatching the first, the, the newest trilogies is that like, there's not a lot of fun in them. Like the first, like Stars, Star Wars yeah. Awakens is like mo the most fun. We're like, oh, we got wacky jokes and stuff. But like, even yeah. watch the original trilogy. Like it's, it's, it's like a watching, a, I mean, it's obviously made for kids. And like, that's uh, something that like sort of permeates throughout all of them. But like the, the newest trilogy where like, you know, you're, you're, you're wrestling with like the light and dark stuff, which is interesting. But like, yeah. it's also like so heavy. And like the second, like the whole third act of like the first one is just like, so not fun. Like, yes. and also like, there's this whole like mystery box stuff, which like, you know, I'm not a big fan of that in general. Like there's no real mystery yeah. in the original. It's like, you don't wonder who Luke's parents are. Like you don't care. You're just like, Oh, this is a kid. Mm -hmm. He went, he goes yeah. on an adventure. He meets some weird people. And like, that's his thing. Like, I don't, I don't care about how the person got there. And like speaking to your point about like the, you have this enormous galaxy, which I think the TV shows really tap into. Like you get to see what happens with like the squad of like the bad troopers. Or you can see what the Mandalorian does. Or you can see like what Ahsoka is doing up, up to but like this it seems the movies seem so contained because it's just two bloodlines and like the whole thesis for the last jedi which i really enjoyed was that like 
who gives a shit? Throw out the good, the bad. Yeah, it's not about this. Like it's about starting yeah. something over with. And like I really enjoyed that. And I felt there was a little bit of an undercut at the end when like the first the, the kid that we see that gets powers is like another white kid. And you're like, I've seen that in like nine <laughs> movies. Like, yeah, it's like there's like a there's like a, a there's like a black kid like right there. Give it to them. Like there's like a little brown girl. Like give that to the, to them. And like the course correction in like the last the the last of three was just like. Yeah, maybe maybe the films could be sort of a thing where they make these big tent. They set up like more stuff for the world. So like it's a big well that they can yeah. go back to. Like, all right, we need to establish that there's like the final order or whatever. Like, all right, we'll set this up in one movie, and then like we can just have that permeate through like the TV shows if they want to go into that and like tap into these certain things. Like, uh, I think maybe doing standalone is the is the maybe the move. Like Rogue One was great. Solo was was fantastic in my opinion. Um, I think having small self contained stories might be the move going forward because also like trilogies are just sort of a, a going going out of the way like you know besides more of like i don't know if trilogies is like the move for like features at this point storytelling yeah i agree uh rogue one is my favorite and i think part of that is because um it is a different angle on the story that you know it's filling in one it's answering a story which was like mm -hmm. how did they get these plans you know ever since mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you heard about the spy mission to acquire the plans. You're like, oh, how did this happen? So now you get that, which was so cool. And also it just wasn't based. It is no more Skywalkers. Like yeah. it wasn't, they, these were like all new people and you really felt it when they died. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because the fact that they're, that Clone Wars exists, that Rebels exist, kind of for me at least softened the blow of the disappointment of you know the the new trilogy the fact that it mm. wasn't that great didn't leave me crushed in the same way that the prequels when they when the first one <laughs> uh, you know when oh the prequels yeah. came out and it yeah. and it was like what the fuck was that it really <laughs> like hurt me yes yeah. because i was like now it's like it's unclear that novelization stuff is even canon anymore and now this kind of sucked like what are we gonna do and it wasn't until clone wars kind of got going mm -hmm. years later that all of that stuff got recontextualized and became kind of cool but this makes it, it it this makes it so that not everything hangs on the movies just being good. I would I do wonder. You mentioned Marvel. Like I wonder if I wonder if they they go for a kind of like Marvel architecture in that they have these kind of like one shots. We're exploring the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go over here and check out what these uh, rebels are doing over here. Let's see what these uh, this spy faction is doing over yeah. here. Let's just go off and, and check out a weird world. And then, much like the Marvel movies, there's some kind of thing that teams them all up mm -hmm. in a later movie. And then and that breaks you out of like this kind of like trilogy architecture, yeah. which yes, Star Wars kind of like pioneered, mm -hmm. but is feels like old movie thinking. It's so stale mm -hmm. now to do sort of like this. It's very expected to do a trilogy or a quadrilogy or, you know, to do these big sort of um sequelized stories but i think that because of the just the financial pressure on a business standpoint of what it takes to make those movies happen it makes so much more sense to have your sort of area of exploration and play be on television be in these little stories mm -hmm. and i mean we we got to see especially in visions just the what happens when you let people do what they're good at 
and mm-hmm. really like let them just play and have fun and tackle some of the themes that Star Wars does so well but in a completely different from a completely different perspective i think it's just mm-hmm. it's what it's what this universe needs yeah and even the, the speaking of that like the cultural half life is so much longer when like you're releasing an episode every week like yep. for yeah. eight, for 2 months to 2 and a half months everyone talked all everyone talked about was baby yoda that's all that they talked about <laughs> i was i was i was up there with the the billhorn yelling about how much i i would die for this little puppet big say it was like a, with the movie comes out, you know, you have really two to four weeks of like, all right, you know, did you see the new Star Wars or whatever? And then it's like just dead. But with having this like recurring thing coming out, also you're stacking that. So like you'll have Mandalorian, you'll have the Bad Batch, you'll have whatever coming out. Mm-hmm. Like it just stays in the cultural zeitgeist so much longer than just a film which comes out and then it's gone in less than a month unless it's like, you know, that, game or whatever. That's a great point. I was working at The Ringer at the time that the first Mandalorian season came out and people who don't care about Star Wars, don't give a shit about sci-fi or fantasy that work there would be like when the subject of Baby Yoda came up. <laughs> like there was a moment, it was like it, you could feel the energy change in the room. Like um, my uh, former editor, Chris Ryan, like his wife was like, if you get a chance to see baby Yoda, to meet baby Yoda, to go and see the prop. Like you have to take me, not a person who like cares about sci-fi. And that was like the vibe. There were people who were just like, listen, if baby Yoda is coming by the office or if anybody gets to go see baby Yoda, please tell me because I want to go see baby Yoda like that. I have not experienced something like that in a while where it was just like this little prop (laughs) doll, baby animatronic, Grogu baby, yeah. 50 year old child, just like was something that so many people needed. Yeah. And yeah, that was not, that was not, that's not a thing that could have really happened in a movie. Context. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. And like, I also think the, the pandemic of it all probably played into that a little bit. We were all yes, looking for, sure. for some joy, but like, yeah. Again, it was, it was taking something that we are very familiar with, you know, Yoda. I'm just flipping it on its head just a little bit. Now it's a little baby. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're all Werner Herzog and we're all like, let me see the baby. <laughs> yeah, I want to see the baby. <laughs> let me see the baby. <laughs> when I saw him for the first time, I said, John, do you understand what you have done? <laughs> For the first time, you have captured the energy that was originally put into the world by the depictions of the Madonna and child. This is the Messiah, John Favreau. Chaos reigns, John. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. And it's, uh, I want to acknowledge something, too. Ziegler and I were talking about this like when we were getting the Zoom started up. The, okay, the movie's... The latest trilogy was was a disappointment. That said, we also grade this stuff on a different scale, which yeah. I think is a is is a huge strength for the TV offerings, right? Yeah. Like uh, Kathleen Kennedy, J.J. Uh, Abrams, uh, et al. got to make three movies, and we judge them on those three movies. On the TV side, it's like Clone Wars, which uh, spanned 133 episodes, yeah. mm-hmm. and some of those suck, but we don't care. Yeah. You're never going to talk about the fact that some of those, I didn't watch Resistance. I watched some of it. It wasn't for me. I love Rebels. But like the fact that on the TV side, they get all of these at bats. They get all of these yeah. chances to tell a story. And 
you know what? If three episodes here, four episodes there, a two episode arc uh, here doesn't hit, we don't we don't fucking give a shit. But if the movies suck, you're going to hear about it. So yeah. there is there is an inherent there is a different way that we talk about these properties, and it's a little bit unfair for for JJ and Kathleen because mm-hmm. you know they only got those three chances, whereas on the TV side they got dozens and dozens and dozens of chances over multiple seasons to yeah. get it right or get it. Right. Yeah, I mean. I will say it would have been nice if JJ and everybody decided to have a plan when they made those three movies rather than just going a little (laughs) willy nilly with it. Because on TV, they plan. You plan a lot. I feel like they had one. But again, you can feel the filmmaking by committee in those. You can feel the panic. You like you can feel that there, you know, somebody, uh, some executive somewhere was like, there's not enough kids with the force in here. Can't the, one of these stable hands have the force or something? And they're like, oh, shit. Now we got to <laughs> rewrite. But and you had to address it. But you felt. And the, honestly, the right, you know, the last Jedi feels the least of that. But you feel it in all of them where it's like there's stuff in Rise of Skywalker <laughs> where you're like, where do, it hooks up to nothing else. It's just like a, <laughs> a snippet that happens. It's like, hey, what is that? Like, where yeah. that? Somehow we got to give Finn a love interest uh, yeah. because we can't you can't date uh, a black person can't date a, a white lady in the future in space. So that's just too <laughs> yeah, much for like, what, what? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, like what? So what are the futures of the movies? Like one thing that is for sure is the people at Disney are smart. They may have mm-hmm. made three yeah. uh, like disappointing movies. But these are people who think about this shit all the time. Like, so how do you all think they'll recalibrate in the future? And. Um, how will they approach movies now to work in conjunction with this burgeoning slate of TV offerings, plus the comics, plus the books, et cetera? You know, I think that um, they're going to really use sort of this space that they're creating with television to get a feel for what people are really responding to and really start to understand that storytelling is changing and the way we tell stories, people want more from them. And I think that this is going to be a real opportunity for them to sort of sit back and like take a beat and take a breath and not necessarily have to put out a movie every single year and all the have all of those expectations sort of rolled into it. They're going to be able to really let the creation of new lore sort of simmer in itself and see what people are really responding to um, and what really resonates with what's going on culturally, which I think is really important because this trilogy that we just saw, it comes from a different culture. Like it comes from a different Mm -hmm. um, desire for what movies are and what movies should be. And it, and it was just too much of a reflection of what we've seen in the past. And, and we're moving so much farther ahead in how we tell stories and the types of stories that we want to tell. And I think that TV gives them a much greater space of experimentation um, that I think they'll be able to then sort of let things rise to the top and really mm-hmm. explore that in a big budget way. Yeah. I mean, just the, especially that last part about the idea of experimentation, like that's where they can test things out and see what, what sticks, you know, like, like introducing the idea of like force healing in, in the Mandalorian before it went to the big screens. Like, I mean, Star Wars, I mean, all fans are, are bad. Fandom is bad in general, but like, you know, Star Wars fans <laughs> are famously hate when you introduce a new power that's, that comes out of nowhere. But when you think about it, like they, like there was no tee up for like 
force lightning. Like Palpatine right. just like mm-hmm. does that shit and, and that just, yeah, that just <laughs> made sense at the time. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah, somehow yeah, Palpatine. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, so yeah, somehow he came back and he can do force lighting. But like, you know, like that T, like Grogo does that in the Mandalorian, and then like Ray does, like that's a running theme throughout, you know, um, um, the Rise of Skywalker. It's so like I think that teeing stuff up that like maybe just getting like a little a little nugget of like, oh, this is a force power, or like this is like a thing of the universe that we didn't know. And then I think you know if they want to test out like if there's like a if they do like um you know they have like a a, a Sith show or whatever and they want to like oh this character's yeah. interesting and I would like to see it makes sense for this to come to, to culminate in a feature this is a story that can only be told uh, in a ninety minute like feature story act like I think our structure that would make sense like but I don't I don't I don't know I I, I can't see them being like we're gonna do another trilogy about another good versus yeah. bad yeah like, I think. I think an interesting take would see the the gray of the world, like the, mm-hmm. the 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 neutral Sith, the gray Jedi, like just seeing like how those people interact, like something that takes place after the fall of the Jedi Order, where it's just like, yeah, there are people out there, sort of like Kylo Ren, who are like sort of okay at being sort of, right. uh, at being using the Force, but they can still get their ass beat by people that don't don't know what they're that sort of know what they're doing, like. That's an interesting one. Just like seeing the Rogue One of it, seeing like you know the 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 feet on the ground, everyday people that are like living in this post galactic or final chapter, whatever the fuck it was called. War, <laughs> war, see what they're like. Final order. Yeah. Well, that's what I loved so much about visions. Like the ideas that they get into in those in the episodes are just. It's so exciting to see you know like a Ronin style story with yeah. you know like a Sith and just. I mean, the way that the force, they use different aspects of the force on different planets. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. that shit. Like, give me more of it. Like, spoon feed it to me. Yum, 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 yum. <laughs> like, I, that's what I want. I mean, like, you know, as a as a kind of like basic storytelling rule, there should always be new information. Yeah. yeah. And that's the great thing about Star Wars visions um, is yes, we're exploring kind of like the core themes of Star Wars, the duality of the Force, um, you know, droids, a, relation, a human relationship mm-hmm. with droids, cool laser swords, mm-hmm. <laughs> et cetera. But it also just feels so fresh and new. Uh, this has been so fun. Up next, the endgame. We're in the end game now, and this week we are playing the Medal of Yavin, in which we will award that great medal that Chewie didn't get at the end of Star Wars. <laughs> racial, basically racial reasons. Like, why didn't yeah. he? He was so important to the to the mission to blow up the Death Star, and then he doesn't get a fucking medal. It's it's honestly insane, and I still get mad about it. But we are going <laughs> to award the Medal of Yavin to our favorite character from the first three episodes of star wars visions let's start with you cody who's your favorite character? Uh, i gotta give a word to my boy to my slug king geezer the the hub uh he's holding it down for all the the fell sons out there in the universe (laughs) 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 his his space garage rock band playing that double bass or double space bass whatever they called it uh i i love i love a i love a good hut that's going through his punk phase and since they live for thousands of years i'm imagining geezer's probably like 200 years old so like i, I love yes. it yeah we stand a king <laughs> alicia um i i have to go this is un- i have to say this is unusual for me i'm not usually like a big sith person but the bandit leader lucy lewis character in the duel she's great she just I, she deserves 
a medal just for the crazy swirling lightsaber <laughs> umbrella thing. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. That is like one of the most badass things I've ever seen. And um, I mean, I also really the little chief in the in the Ronin. That sweet <laughs> yeah. little chief. chief was... He's he's actually probably deserves it more than the actual terrible Sith overlord that Lucy Liu played. <laughs> she was just so badass, like. I couldn't get enough. She was incredibly bad. Points for style. Oh my god, style it's, points for days. Yeah. When she lets her uh like her hood just like fly yes. reveal her hair, yeah. I was like, yes. <laughs> um uh, I also uh, love the bandit leader, but you know what? Uh in order to keep it different, I'm gonna pick the twins together, Carrie mm. and Am. Mm. Uh I'm gonna pick them as one person who uh together kind of embody the duality of the force and the constant struggle between light and dark. Uh, and uh, of course, for their incredible uh, use of hyper-stylized violence yeah. and massive destruction uh, <laughs> and immense power uh, in the seemingly frail bodies of two individuals the contains so much power and force, and it was just, uh, it, it was incredible to watch. I'm gonna, it, they're gonna have to share the metal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. They'll figure out a way to do they'll it. Slice it down the middle. Yeah, yeah they'll slice it down the middle. With one of her many those lightsaber are, arms. <laughs> yes, I was, so that, that metal's for them. Let me just leave it in a room and walk away. I don't wanna hand it to them because I'll probably get uh, cut up into a million pieces. <laughs> That's it for the end game. Let us know whether you agree or couldn't disagree more or have your own Medal of Yavin winner. Get at us at hashtag XRV Endgame. That's XRV Endgame. Cody, Alicia, thanks for joining us on another mm-hmm. episode of XR Vision. Plug, plug, plug. Where can we find y'all uh, next? If you want to find me, yay for Zig across all them social media platforms, baby, that's where I be. Uh, check out uh, Amazing Spider-Man uh, number 79 yes! and 80, baby. Woo! Yeah, I got, I got I got that dropping out. So yeah, that that that's where I be. Amazing, and that's I'm so at Alicia Lutz on all the things: Twitter, Instagram, not Facebook. Um, and that's where I post all my stories and all my silly thoughts. So uh, yeah, you can check me out there. Join us each week on Wednesday, our new regular release day, for your weekly dose of the deepest dives, hottest takes, etc. May the force. Remain with you. May it be with you. Carry it with you wherever you go, folks. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music and our editing and sound design today. Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Sarah, uh, thank you for doing this from your vehicle today. I super appreciate it, and it's been fun to watch over Goodbye! Cody, who is the tastiest Star Wars alien? Like, if you had to, if you had to cook them up. Oh, boy. Uh, this sounds... I mean, the Salacious Crumb comes to mind because his last oh, name says Crumb, so I feel like he, he's probably like some tasty liver fat going on. I've uh, I've always maintained that Admiral Akbar with oh. just like some salt. Oh boy, and yeah, some, and some lemon. You sear that bad boy up. <laughs> yeah, and he's gonna taste. Oh yeah, so fucking good. Pull out those pin bones. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bet him and um um what was the the squid dude kid um Kit Basher. Oh 
yeah, kid fashion. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, he, can we get this cut this cut those tentacles off and yeah. like just like fry those up? Salt and pepper, fish sauce. Yeah. Yeah, like oh fuck yeah. Man. Stir fry. <laughs> Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.